0: Anyone enjoying the weather so far? It's been beautiful these past few days. If there's one thing I've realized growing older, it is I hate snow. I absolutely hate it. I can't stand it. And this is why. I hate snow because, well, growing up you build igloos and stuff, you can have fun. But now it's just impeding my ability to leave the house and go to work, go wherever I have to go. It cancels my flights. It cancels, it delays things. It's just bad. I hate it. And when I was younger, I had my brother living with me. And so we would go outside, we'd shovel the driveway, and my parents would give us money for shoveling out the driveway. But now, as I've grown older, there's no one else to help me. It's just me, and my mom will come out too, but that's about it. There's no one else to help me shovel the snow. And I despise shoveling snow. It hurt my back, I'm sweating, it's just uncomfortable. And so this last snowstorm... I was shoveling snow with my mom outside. My dad has a heart condition, so he's not able to shovel the snow. And so as we're shoveling, you know, there's you know, almost two feet of snow. A guy comes over in his snow blower. And he's coming down the street. And I'm thinking, like, maybe this guy will feel generous. Maybe he's a Christian. Maybe he'll just, you know, offer to do my driveway for free. He looks at us. He's like, ha, I give you two props for doing that. Nobody does that anymore. And then he just carries on. He's like, I'm charging like $200 per driveway. But you go on. You go on doing what you're doing. And I was just like, oh, this guy. Just couldn't stand him. And here I am working with all of my might. And this guy just easily coasts up his driveway, coasts down his driveway, and then goes to other people's driveways and makes money off of it. And he makes fun of me for doing this with my poor mom outside. And I wonder... As an analogy, is it possible that the way that we live our Christian life can have an effect on other people? In other words, when you are living out your life in the way that you do, you say that you believe certain things. Do these beliefs actually play out in the way that you act? Does Christianity seem to other people like freedom or like slavery? Do you speak of being able to coast through this life with ease? A life of happiness, a life of joy, a life of fulfillment. But really, you seem to like everybody else, like you're the one who's grumpy, shoveling out your driveway while everyone else is coasting. How does your belief impact the way that you live? Because your Christian conduct should have an influence on other people. Here's the whole point of this entire message it is this the way that we live should cause people to ask questions people should look at your life and say what is it about you that causes you to live in such a way that is so different than everybody else and not different for the sake of being different not different because it's weird different because the way that you live actually does seem to be more peaceful than everybody else and so Your Christian conduct itself can be a witness, or in other words, can be a testimony to the power of God in three ways. Number one, our righteous living can be a witness. Our response to suffering, number two, can be a witness. And number three, our response to questions can be a witness. So very simply, the way that you live your life, the way that you conduct yourself should be different than everybody else. And as you are living in this world, you are obeying certain commands, no? You want to be holy because God is holy. You want to be righteous because God is righteous. And so you're living your life fulfilling the commands that he's given us, which will look different than the world who just does whatever they want. But that righteous living that includes some benefits to it should cause people to look at your life and say, I want that too. The way that Christians suffer, the way that you go through suffering should look different because we have hope that the world doesn't have. And when they ask you these questions, you should respond in such a way that actually answers. And and actually, your life itself should be an answer to people's questions. So first of all, we're talking about are righteous living. Verse 16 says this. It says, Having a good conscience, that when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. For it is better if it is the will of God to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. He says, as you live this life, you should live in a way that's good, because you're going to, most likely, in your life, be persecuted. And as you're persecuted, you can almost get down on yourself, right? It's like your friends make fun of you. You're like, really, you're not going to drink? Really, you're not going to go out with us and party? You're not going to do the things that everybody else does? And they're going to revile you. And there'll be a temptation within you to be like, well, maybe I can compromise on just this one little thing. Maybe I can date an unbeliever. It's not really like that bad, you know? It's like they're pretty close. Or you compromise in the little ways because you feel like it's not really that big of a deal and maybe it'll be more of a powerful witness. You know, like growing up in the church, you always look at those people that have a testimony, like the people that, I was a drug drug addict, I was an alcoholic, whatever, and then I found Jesus. And you're like, wow, that's a powerful story. Maybe I need to stumble in order to have a good testimony. This is just what you think when you're younger. Not looking at actually there's consequences to your sin. And there's no guarantee that you can come out of it. So our righteous living should be different, should set us apart from the world. And many people want to live in a way that is right. They want to please God, right? But they just don't want to be too religious. You don't want to be holier than thou. You don't want to be labeled as someone who's a goody two-shoes one of them, the people that are the serious Christians. You know, you'll be like one of the like the Christians that like you you basically read your Bible once a week. But you're not like one of those people that reads it every day, because if you did, then other people would be discouraged, because they'll never read every day. You won't like say the really bad words, but you'll say semi bad words because you don't want to be judged as one of those people that looks at everybody else and says, Oh, you use those words. I'm so much better than you. So we gotta ask the question though. Are there really benefits to pursuing a life of holiness? Is there there anything in it for me if I try to be a righteous, holy person? Or am I just supposed to do it just because? The Bible says don't curse. Okay, fine. The Bible says don't get a tattoo. (laughs) See, I got your attention. Obviously, we don't actually believe that the Bible is against tattoos. It talks about it in... The beginning of the Bible, but it also talks about sideburns. That's besides the point. Are there benefits to sacrificing your sacrificing some things to gain a life of purity? Well, yeah. There's a whole bunch of them. Let me give you one. Number one, we pursue Jesus because He first loved us, and it is impossible to pursue a relationship with Jesus without pursuing His character. If you're in a relationship, wouldn't you want to be of the same mind as that person? Wouldn't you want to have the same interests? Wouldn't you want to, like, actually get along? Why would you want to do things that continually hurt the other person? In fact, when you're in love, you'll naturally look to be selfless. At least in the beginning, it would seem. When you're in a relationship, you want to Open the door for the, for the lady as she walks in. You want to go bend over backwards, buy her roses. You want to do all these things because you love her and you care for her. You don't think about all the things that offend her and just like, well, deal with it. I'm never going to open the door for you. I'm never going to buy roses for you. And you're like making this list of, I will never do these things because I don't want to look like I'm whipped, you know. You don't even think about that because you're in love. And when we really focus on what Jesus has done for us, how his blood has bought our salvation when we were without hope. We were on our way to hell, destined because of the sin that we've done and, and the wrongs that we've committed. We deserve to die. But God Himself made a way. Why would we ever look at that and take it lightly? So, of course, we want to pursue Jesus, and pursuing Jesus means that we're going to live holy. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 22 says, Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having a heart sprinkled from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. Why would you want to continue, and things that are going to continually make you guilty, and feel condemned? Why would you want to compromise in such a way that you're always going to be weighed down by the wrong things that you do? Instead, wouldn't you want to live in, a, in, a, in such a way that your conscience is free from those burdens of sin? So, One additional benefit is having a clear conscience actually feels good. When you wake up in the morning and you don't feel like, oh, I still haven't read. Oh, man, I still looked at junk on the internet. Oh, I still heard that person. Well, you don't have to feel that way. And you can actually be free. You don't feel like you're taking the shovel, always trying to be religious, fulfilling laws. You're just loving the life that you have because it really is filled with peace. And now... You just want to please God with your life, and that's why you do right things. It's not because you have to earn something from God. Here's another, uh, another benefit. You avoid the painful consequences of sin. In not sinning, you avoid a pretty huge benefit, which is not reaping the consequences of your sin. I'm not saying a Christian sins is going to be judged eternally by God. I'm not saying that, because the Bible says there is now, therefore... No condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. However, that does not mean you are saved from earthly consequences. And I'm not saying that God's throwing down trials after trials to punish you. I'm saying that there are some built-in consequences to sin. You sleep around, you'll get an STD. Now, it's not like God's punishing you saying, I'm going to give you an STD because you're sleeping around. It's built in to the very nature of what sin is. It is apart from God's perfect will and intention. And by sinning, you will reap consequences because it's not the perfect design. It's not the thing for which it was made for. If you decide, well, I'm a Christian, it's okay to to drink once in a while, and by chance you get drunk, God's going to forgive you. But that doesn't guarantee that you're going to make it home alive if you're driving drunk. That doesn't change the fact that you might hurt a lot of people while being drunk. Hurt your family. It doesn't change the fact that cheating on someone will not hurt the uh, other people in your family. Sin has built-in consequences and by abstaining from those sins, yes, actually protects you. Even the things that you think are minor. You think like, well, if it's only in the privacy of my own heart, it doesn't affect anybody. Really? There's no such thing, I think, as a private sin. Think of any sin it is. All sins offend God and other people and hurt ourselves in the process. Because sin is going away from God's perfect intentions. Here's another benefit. Effective prayer. James 5.16 says, Therefore confess your sins to one another... And pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous, man, a righteous person has great power as it is working. Another translation says, Fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. By praying to the God of the universe, not having your conscience burdened with sin and guilt, the Bible says that your prayers are effective. That God will hear your prayers. And that's what we heard Last week, when we're talking about this, like, God is against those that do wickedness. But if you're free from those condemnations, you're free from those guilt, you can pray, and God does hear your prayers. And the one we're really focusing on tonight, because that's our subject, is it is a powerful witness. And added benefit, maybe you don't even think about this too often. A benefit of living righteously is it, it is itself a powerful witness. Why? You would actually think the opposite, wouldn't you? You would feel like by being too holy, that alienates you from everybody else. Like you can't relate with sinners, can't relate with unsafe people, and by being really cool, really righteous, really holy, whatever, it's like makes you unrelatable. And no one feels like they can even talk to you. They just feel condemned around you. Really? I actually want to challenge that, and this is why. Because wasn't Jesus the most righteous man of all? And didn't he spend the most time with sinners? In fact, all the people he talked to were sinners. Every single one. Every single human being. Yet it would seem that Jesus saved some people. It seems like Jesus' ministry was kind of effective, wouldn't you say? And let me prove to you that this is the template for us. Because in this very verse it says, I'll read it again, having a good conscience. In other words, don't be weighed down with guilt. Live righteously. So that when people actually defame you as evildoers, they call you names, persecute you, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. So here, what Peter is saying as an additional benefit of living blamelessly is, and I wrote it down so that you would be able to understand what I'm saying very clearly. Those that persecute you won't be able to pin any legitimate offense on you. And therefore, their persecution only helps to reveal your good character and thus make a bold witness for Christ. Check it out. When you live blamelessly so that people can accuse you of sin, what happens is those people that persecute you, it makes it that much more evident that they are persecuting and not calling you out on sin. When Jesus was before Pontius Pilate, what happened? Everyone accused him of wrongdoing, and it only highlighted the fact that he was innocent. Millions of people, it would seem, are watching a documentary called Making of a Murderer. And people are outraged, whether it's true or not, not the point. People are outraged at the prospect that there might be a man condemned for murder when he didn't actually commit it. And so everyone that believes that he's innocent is rushing to his defense that this man is innocent. So as you're living a life that's righteous, there's nothing that can be pinned on you. You don't share in the gossip. So when people say, oh, that, per- that person said this about you, no one else believes it. Like, that person would never say that thing about me. That person hasn't said a bad thing about anybody. But here's the thing. If you gossip about other people with your friends, you always make fun of other people with your group of friends, and someone else says that person gossiped about you, you believe it, don't you? And you're outraged. How could they gossip about me? You believe it because you shared in that gossip with them. But if you're a person who's blameless, really, holy, righteous, you're living in such a way that people can't pin offenses on you when people challenge you, persecute you, it only highlights the fact that you are falling after God and living in such a way that like, wow, that guy is probably one of the most nicest, kindest, gentle, and peaceful people I've ever met in my life. What makes that person so different? The fact that my father, like I've never heard him say any curse word in my life. The, the closest he got was when I was younger. He came home and he forgot milk at ShopRite. He like didn't pack in the bag. He came home My mom was like, you forgot the milk. And he went, nuts. (laughs) That was the closest he got. I was like, who says nuts? Come on, people, this is the 90s. So, but that's a testimony, isn't it? And so if someone said like, oh man, your dad was like dropping the F-bomb the other day. It's like, my dad, really? Do you know my dad? He's one of the nicest people I know. And I'm not just saying that because I live with him. In fact, the fact that I live with him should actually, uh, I should see more sin in this life, not less. So what if we had that testimony? It can be really, really powerful. And I want to challenge you with that. Our lifestyle can lead others to ask these questions. And as we are living righteously, people will begin to ask. Like Jesus when he talked to the woman at the well. Simple woman, sleeping around with a lot of guys. And as Jesus is talking to her, she said to Jesus, You're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman. Why are you asking me for a drink? And you know, that was something, that was a a polite gesture to actually ask, would you give me a drink in those days, in that culture? So they noticed there was something different about this man. David and Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth, you know, related to Jonathan, the only descendant left of Jonathan, David's best friend. David's looking around saying, is there anyone left of Jonathan's household that I could show kindness to? like, yeah, there's this guy who's, who's crippled. His name is Mephibosheth. And so David showed Im- immense kindness to him. And Mephibosheth saw this kindness, bowed respectfully and exclaimed in 2 Samuel, Who is your servant that you would show such kindness to a dead dog like me? You see, living righteously doesn't mean that you just abstain from things. It means that you do good. It means that you, what? You can sum the entire Bible, the entire List of commandments in the Bible in two sentences. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Living righteously doesn't mean that you just don't do bad things. It means that you do good things. It means that you love people, right? It means that you look at your enemy and say, I want to love that person. Everyone else is making fun of them. I'm actually going to say something nice about them. You rush to the defense of your enemies, and when people see that kindness, they ask, what is driving you to be that kind of person? And that's the way we should be living. When you're not engaging in the same language as everybody else, you're not drinking at those parties, you're not flirting with every other girl and talking about every girl in such a way that just treats them like they're an object and not like a human being. You're not engaging in those same things anymore and people start to notice. Or as we're going to see in a couple weeks, 1 Peter 4.4 says, Of course, your former friends are surprised when you no longer plunge into the flood of wild and destructive things that they do, so they slander you. Now, this is really important. When we live in such a way that pleases God and causes people to ask questions, it is so important that our lifestyle needs to back up what we say we believe. If for nothing else... We should live righteously because the world is looking to just say that Christianity is full of hypocrites. If we say that we believe that this is the way to life fulfillment, happiness, if we say that we obey his commands, we say that, shouldn't we actually live that? And if we don't, the world looks at us and says, "See, there's nothing nothing different. There's nothing special about being Christian." They act exactly like we do. They talk exactly like we do. They look exactly like we do. There's nothing different. And so why would I want to go to church? I'll be just like you. Our lifestyle has to back that up. That we actually look different than the world. Listen, that's not the point. The point is not to just get a list of don'ts, list of do's, and try our best to manage it, because that's legalism. The point is, fixing our eyes on Jesus. And when you do, you automatically separate yourself from everybody else. Because the love of God, the love of other people compels you. The reason, the reason why I stopped looking at pornography wasn't because I was like, well, I really got to stop. It's because I went on a website one day that showed a list of all these different people with their struggles. It was like an anonymous website where you could post anything. And so people would say different things that they they would write things on postcards and put it on the internet, knowing that no one would ever know who it was that posted these things. And so it was things like, I've been cheating on my wife, my kids don't know, I'm miserable, I'm going to commit suicide tomorrow. It was things like, I was abused by a family member, and nobody else knows, and I'm so depressed every single day. Things like that all over this website. I looking at this website I was like here I am miserable feeling condemned feeling guilty all because of a sin that I refuse to give up all my suffering is self-caused here are people that are actually dealing with real problems and they can't escape those consequences but I say that I have hope I say that I have Jesus and all those things and I'm living in bondage and I said if I can have an effect on those people I will stop doing this forever and by the power and grace of God, it was that day, in that moment, I never did it ever again. I completely was freed of it. And I had tried. I had tried. Of, like I had methods. I had plans. I had formulas. I'm going to make sure that I have accountability partners. I have all these things, all these programs. I'm going to make sure I don't do it anymore. But it wasn't until I had this conviction for lost souls that I was able to actually give it up. So I said, how could I? who has been given this life, how can I, who Jesus died for, live my life so selfishly? And if I can have an effect on other people, I'm not going to live like this anymore. It's miserable. And it's all self-misery. So I was able to give it up. And I think that all of us can have that same freedom. And so we must show our actions, with our actions, what we actually believe in. So what's a practical application of this? Number one, don't, do not go against your conscience. Do not go against your conscience. Well-known pastor, theologian, John MacArthur, said this, if your conscience is too easily wounded, don't violate it. To violate even a weak conscience is to train yourself to override conviction. And that will lead to overriding true conviction about real sin. There are things that we think about, like, is this really bad? I'm not really sure. I guess it's not bad for that person. Like, especially when it comes to relationships, it's like, is it wrong to kiss? Is it wrong to... Here's the thing. If you have the question, just don't do it. If your conscience is convicting you, just don't do it. Even if it's not technically wrong. Why? Because... By overriding your conscience, you're making a habit out of that. So when there's actual sin, you're going to override that too. But I can prove this biblically too. There was a case in which there were some people in a church that were wondering about whether you could eat food that was sacrificed to idols. And they're like, oh, that's completely bad. You can't do that. Because, like, what they would do is they'd sacrifice slabs of meat to idols and then it would just sit there because the idol's not real. He's not going to actually, like, come alive, like, oh, thank you, and then eat. So all this leftover meat that people are sacrificing idols was just kind of like it could be thrown out or it could be sold uh, at the marketplace for a discounted price. And so there are some Christians that are like, yes, discounted meat. That's offered to idols. And there's some people like, okay, that is messed up. You don't know if Satan's going to just pounce on you because this thing was, like, in the presence of an idol and demons are going to come out of the meat. So there's some people that are Really, really sensitive to this situation of can you really eat the meat or can you not eat the meat and listen to what Paul the apostle said to the church about this in Romans chapter 14 verse 23 he says this if you have doubts about whether or not you should eat something you are sinning if you go ahead and do it for you are not following your convictions and here's a really powerful statement in the NLT it says this if you do anything you believe is not right, you are sinning. New King James Version says, For whatever is not from faith is sin. That's a pretty powerful statement. So how do you know, like, what if, what if your conscience is, like, misleading you? The fact of the matter is, as you align yourself with the Bible, God will reveal those things. But if you feel like those things are wrong, don't override your conscience. Whatever doesn't proceed from faith is sin. Secondly is this. Do a heart check. The Bible says the heart is deceitfully wicked, right? We know that's wicked above all else. But it's also from the heart come the wellsprings of life. It comes to all your decisions. And so that's why we need to watch ourselves and allow the the Lord to check our hearts. In fact, Proverbs chapter 23 says, For as he thinks in his heart, so is he. So the Bible has this understanding that your heart is kind of the the seat of all your decision-making. Everything comes from the heart. Everything flows from the heart. So it's a good idea, since our hearts are wicked, to continually check it and say, Lord, is there anything wicked in me that I need to fix? Is there anything that I've been doing that's been wrong? Because I want to do what pleases you. All right, next two points are shorter, so don't worry. Our Our response to suffering is the second point a response to suffering. You see that in verses 13 through 14. It says, And who is he who har- will harm you if you become followers of what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you are blessed. What he's basically saying is, in these two verses, listen, if you're the kind of person that's good, righteous, holy, friendly, kind, loves even their enemies, who's not going to want to be your friend? And if you're that kind of person Who's actually going to make fun of you? Who's going to persecute you? Right? Just imagine. Imagine if you're the type of person that never, ever gossips about anyone. Ever. Who wouldn't want to be your friend? And what kind of jerk would make fun of you? If you're the person that always keeps secrets, always keeps promises, is always loyal, is always selfless, the type of person that when you call them, they're there for you. It doesn't matter what hour of the night they don't complain. It doesn't matter how much you vent to them about your ruined relationship, about that guy that turned you down. He's never bitter. He's never, or she's never, grumpy, complaining. So like, all right, listen, like, okay, I've, I've had enough, you're just too much. I need some me time. A person's never like, who wouldn't want to be that person's friend? Everybody would. So the Bible's saying like, Like, if you're living in this kind of way, who wouldn't want to be your friend? Number one. But, of course, there are messed up people in this world. There will be exceptions. So if there's an exception and there is a person who is harming you if you become followers of what is good, you suffer for righteousness' sake, listen, you're still blessed. The Bible says, like, if you're innocent and you suffer for what is right... That God still blesses you in this life. Our suffering, in other words, should look absolutely different than the way that everybody else suffers. Because even when you're persecuted for righteousness, you say, there's a reward in heaven for me. And when you're suffering in general, even when you have bad days. Like, I've had some really tough months of just, like, expenses. Like, my I have... This is another story. I have two cars, and both cars have been giving me trouble. And so I'm going to the shop, like, every other week. In the past couple of weeks, like, my alternator went, which is, like, 300 bucks. I had to change my timing belt. Was another 300 bucks. Like, all these things. I had to go to a dentist, like, a billion times because I have cavities. Every week I'm going to a dentist. And it's like, oh, man, like, my pockets are just being drained. So as this is happening, you know, one of two things. Just like, what's up, God? Why are you doing this to me? I did nothing to deserve this. You can get really mad at God. Or you can say, you know what? The Lord gives and He takes away. It's not my money anyway. That's always been my philosophy. Every time I got a speeding ticket, which is not too many times, a couple times, every time I got a speeding ticket, I'm like, Lord, if you don't want me to be rich, I get it. That's fine. It's your money. If you don't want me to donate $500 to your church and you want me to donate $500 to the government, I understand. Of course, like everybody knows, I wouldn't actually donate $500 to the church if I didn't have to pay for the ticket. But I always promise in the moment, right? It's really interesting that we can suffer differently than everybody else because we have a hope that that lies in the person of Jesus Christ, which is exciting. And listen, I know people, I know people that do two, two things. People that suffer like Job and people that suffer like Jesus. People that suffer like Job Get hit with trial after trial after trial. And most of us look at the book of Job and, like, yes, he was a righteous man. You ever read the book of Job? Half the book is him complaining. Like, oh, if only I could get one word with God. If only I could get an answer, an explanation with God. And a lot of us suffer like Job, always complaining. Or you can suffer like Jesus. Or you can suffer like Joseph. Joseph went to prison. I mean, he was thrown in a pit by his brothers, betrayed, sold into slavery. He went into jail. And through all these messes, after he prophesies the cupbearer and and he gets set free, he's like, just remember me. It's like two years later. It's like, oh, yeah, Joseph. He's not bitter. The Bible doesn't say he takes revenge and, like, chokes the cupbearer. He's like, come on, man, two years. I didn't have to be in jail for two years. And then when he has the opportunity to take out revenge on his brothers, imagine. Like, just just Imagine. You're holding this grudge against people that have been hurting you year after year, always persecuting you, always teasing you, all of your life. And you know that they're biased. And then they're at your mercy. Now you're second in command over all of Egypt. And your brothers come in. And they need food. Oh, really? For me? You need food for me, do you? And uh, so what brings you here? Like, oh, a famine. Oh, great. Like, who wouldn't take revenge on them? You even, let's say that, like, God spoke to you, like, in an audible voice. It says, I want you to provide, and this is how you're going to carry it out. Like, great, I'm going to add my own, like, whippings. I'm going to add this time when they're, like, they're all in jail for, like, five years, and then I'll fulfill your commands. But he doesn't do that. And, in fact, at the end, he says, what you intended for evil, God intended for good. You can summarize the entire life of Joseph in that verse. What man intended for evil, God intended for good. But you know what? The brothers were so riddled with guilt that when their father died, when Jacob died, they thought that may, maybe Joseph was only nice to them because their father was still alive. And that since he died, they were just going to take, take revenge on him. And so they just, they, they went up to him and they said, hey, we'll be your slaves, we'll do anything you want, we're just so sorry, and just in case you're still bitter. And it it grieved the heart of Joseph, because he realized that they still didn't feel like they were forgiven. You ever feel like that? No matter how many times you repent to the Lord, no matter how many times you ask for forgiveness for whatever it is that you've done, maybe it's a secret sin that you feel like nobody else knows and no one will ever know, you just can't forgive yourself, the only thing separating you from true freedom is listening to what God has said. That you are forgiven and believing his word. That's the only thing. So That being said, I know people that suffer in such a way that they don't even show it. But you know that they're going through a hard time. And Christians that are really believing what God's word has said about suffering can quote Psalm 34 verse 19. It says this. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. Lastly, a response to questions. Verse 15. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense. The word is apologia, where we get apologetics, to everyone who asks your reason, logos, for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. Always be ready. So, okay, you're living a life that's righteous, and you're living a life that shows hope in the midst of suffering. Now people are going to ask you questions. You get to choose how to respond to suffering. You get how to choose how to live your life. Now people are going to ask, what makes you so different? And the Bible says, always be ready to give a defense. doesn't say offense. In fact, it should be the exception that we go out and have to do the street evangelizing thing. On the norm, it should be more frequent that people come up to you and you have to give a defense, give a reason for the hope that lies within you. So, are you ready? If people ask you questions today, would you be ready? Maybe not like today on the stage, because today on the stage, you know, it was easy, I was just kind of listening. But people will ask you questions. And when they ask you questions, will you be prepared? Let's say a person asks you today, Why does God say that homosexuality is a sin? How many of you would be prepared to answer that question? Because here's the thing. How you answer that question can immediately determine whether or not a person wants to see Christianity or wants to shun Christianity. How a person will be open to going to church with you Or, how a person will be closed off and wants to run away and has nothing to do with God or church. Depending on whether you, like it says in that verse, give the defense with meekness and fear, that you're gentle. You know how many people don't come to church because a person's trying to shove the Bible down their throat, yelling at them, condemning them, going in a way that's completely unlike Jesus? But when people ask you questions, do you have an answer? If a person was to ask you a question about how do you know that the Bible is true, would you be able to say something about that? How can you be sure that Jesus is God? Would you be able to answer? C.S. Lewis said, good philosophy must exist if for no other reason because bad philosophy needs to be answered. Just think about this. If a person genuinely is not a Christian just because they don't believe God is real, like that's the only reason. It's not emotional. It's not because they're a person that wants to keep on sinning for the rest of their life. Let's say that's simply intellectual. By you coming off in such a way that's arrogant, you might completely close the, the door for that person. I'm not saying that you have to have all the answers. I am saying that you should be diligent to, to be to whom much is given, much is required. And since you live in, a, in an area where the Bible is given out, you're in a Christian school or you're coming to church, you're involved in a youth group, we're responsible with the knowledge that we're given. So we are to answer in a way that's gentle. And even if we don't know the answer, we say, you know what? I don't know the answer to that, but I'm going to find out. You can get their number. You can ask them if they would like to have you follow up with them. That's an easy way to just be humble and have Humility. In Acts chapter 8, verse 30 through 31, there's a guy named Philip, Philip the evangelist, who saw a eunuch reading a scroll from the Old Testament. And so he asked, when he was reading the book of Isaiah, he said, hey, do you understand what you're reading? He sees a guy reading the Bible, just imagine, put yourself in Philip's shoes. You have a guy here, a non-Christian, reading the Bible. So he walks up and says, Hey. Do you understand what you're reading? You know what the eunuch said? He said this. How can I unless someone guides me? Are you prepared to guide someone through the Bible? Are you prepared to be able to answer the question? If a person asks you, what should I do to be saved? Could you say something? That's just a thought I want to leave you with. I'm not going to build on that anymore. But we as Christians should be answering with wisdom, with humility, be diligent to figure these things out if you don't know them. Ravi Zacharias is an apologist, and he travels all around the world. He does something clever. He realized if he tells people when, when people ask him, so what do you do for work? If he says, I am a Christian apologist, number one, people don't understand the second word. And if they do understand the second word, they don't want to talk to him for the rest of the evening. So he'll go on a plane, he'll be on a flight, and people don't want to be disturbed. So he'll never say, I'm a Christian apologist. He says this, I travel all around the world asking, uh, answering people's questions. And people are like, what kind of questions? He says, the very deepest questions in life. And then people will be like, I got some questions. He's wise about it. He's smart, you know. He's thinking about how to best answer people when they have a question. I want to leave you with that tonight. Think about, pray about who is in your life that doesn't know about Jesus and how can you bring Jesus to them. Apologetics, we could spend weeks upon weeks just talking about apologetics, defending the faith. We're not doing that tonight, obviously. That's just too much for one message. I want you to take away from this message those three things. Your life can be a witness and how you live your life can have an influence on other people's lives. And so... Your righteous living, your response to suffering, and your response to questions all can testify to the grace of God and his love. Let's pray together.